0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer.
1: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, This is going to be episode 126.1. If you're one of our veteran listeners, you know why that is. Uh, You might have been reading last week about the second grand snowstorm to hit, hit the american southeast in one winter which is almost unheard of it seems to have taken out danny anderson so i am joined this fine afternoon only by michael farmer who is a fine conversation partner so don't let anyone tell him differently uh he is an assistant professor of english at crown college in saint bonifacius minnesota how are you doing michael
0: I'm pretty good, except I did not prepare for to answer Danny's questions, so I hope our <laughs> listeners will forgive me for that.
1: All right. Well, uh, I, it, I
0: mean, wait, uh, since these questions are completely improvised and answered without any kind of preparation.
1: Yes, <laughs> yes, we're just having a free-flowing conversation. We never write anything down. sprezzatura spreadsatura. <laughs>
0: sprezzatura sprezzatura I don't know. I can't think of any more uh, Italian words to throw into that song.
1: The the Christian humanist Tarantella. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Coming soon to iTunes. All of us hope not. (laughs) All right. So,
0: um,
1: so we did get one email from Andrew Vantland, who is a uh, faithful listener often writes into us. Here's what Andrew says. Hey guys, I've been, I've briefly corresponded with Nathan and Michael before. So you know how much I revel in the academic side of your podcast offerings. But I love the pop culture riffs just as much, Pulp Fiction in particular. Two thoughts about the recent folk music episode. Number one, Michael, I'm so grateful that you recommended Josh Ritter. My wife got me hooked on him, and we're going to another one of his shows this coming week, A Fitting Valentine's Date. Fantastic, Fantastic songwriter, talented musician, vivacious performer, can't recommend him enough. Number two. Yeah,
0: the other thing I the other thing I didn't mention about Ritter is both of his parents are like I think they're neuroscientists. I know they're scientists. So Whoa. he has this really strange and wonderful mixture of religious imagery and like traditional American folk imagery and science imagery. He has a very funny song called uh oh I don't remember. I think it's just called the science song. And he says that it's it's not love that makes the world go round and then he goes into this very detailed, jargony scientific explanation of why the world turns. So if that's the sort of thing that appeals to you, another reason to listen to Joshua.
1: Number two, I'm curious as to your thoughts on the recent new folk resurgence, Mumford & Sons, Edward Sharp, Magnetic Zeros, Avett Brothers, Lumineers, etc. As an amateur folk bluegrass musician, I can understand the resentment of purists to the popification of the banjo, mandolin, fiddle, guitar, double bass sound, but I have to confess that though I'm not sure how well it will age... I find most of the indie folk I come across absolutely desi- delightful. Thanks again for producing such auditory excellence at the Christian humanist from Drew. So, Michael, I mean, indie folk. I'm I'm really not up on it because my pop culture knowledge really kind of cuts off at 1997. What do you have to say about it?
0: I like some indie folk. I really like... Uh... Bright Eyes and Connor Oberst, and I know that that's kind of a controversial opinion because he's pretentious, but I don't mind that. Um, I like him. Obviously, I like Awkerville River, who get, sometimes gets classed with that indie folk movement. Um, obviously, I like them because I, I think I talked about them ad nauseum last year on the podcast, and I'm writing a paper about their last album now, so I feel like I'm, I've am i dived into that particular uh, band. Um, I, I must say, I, I have not heard the Avett Brothers for whatever reason and i haven't i've heard a couple songs from edward sharp and the magnetic zeros and the only thing i know from the Lumineers is that hey ho song they they they, they it gets played everywhere i i don't really like that song it's it's catchy but i i find the lyrics so twee and stupid that I, I can't deal with it. Mumford & Sons bothers me not because they're inauthentic, but because their entire aesthetic seems to be this borrowed authenticity, and that that is annoying to me. So I'm, I'm no folk purist, but I guess I would have to say I don't like the bands he mentioned, but it's not because I'm a purist. It's because... Well, I don't know. I just don't like it. It's, it's a little too twee for me. <laughs> you know, the uh, the guys from the Sound Opinions podcast reviewed the most recent Mumford and Sons album, and they said something that I thought was really interesting. They said it's full of religious language, but there's absolutely no specificity to it. And and um, I, I got to thinking, and that may be one of my problems with Mumford and Sons that, that right, it's right. This, this kind of huggy, vague spirituality. And you know, I'd rather them. I'd rather them talk in specific terms about something, which once again but, is something. Ockerville River and Bright Eyes both do really well. Um,
1: right, the Fanny and Zoe syndrome. Franny, Franny, son of a gun. See, Fr- I thought f- I was going to f- make a modern literature reference, and I blew it.
0: Fanny and Zoe is something very different.
1: <laughs> oh, stop! I, I tried.
0: <laughs> but I would say, you know. One of my dissertation chapters is on Franny and Zoe. I I would say there's actually a good deal of specificity in that, in that in that book. Um, in in terms right, of
1: right. But isn't that the complaint about one of the title characters? Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It's it's Zoe's complaint about Franny, and 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 to me, Mumford and Sons are Franny. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, like that's what I was trying to get at. I just left a consonant out. Give me a break, <laughs> idiot. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Let, let's talk some Beaumont and Fletcher, and then we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, we'll see who wins there. I can't even name one of their plays. Uh, they did well. a Rover? No, that's uh, Afroban.
1: Yeah, sorry. sorry. That's all right. It's all right. You win. You win again. <laughs> all right. Well, this week, uh, as Michael said, we are a little bit ill prepared because we thought we were going to be a trio. Uh, however, like we said, this snowstorm in the southeast seems to have taken. Dr. Anderson out of the picture but uh we've talked for a while now about doing a postmodernism episode uh and so I'm going to start out I was going to ask Danny Anderson about uh Francois Lyotard's book The Postmodern Condition but I'm just going to talk about it kind of free form for a couple minutes here and then we'll launch into the discussion proper This is a 1979 essay uh it's only about 70 pages it's not something that takes Uh, Weeks and Weeks to Read, it's a relatively short piece. Uh, And his basic thesis is that in the age of networked computers, and you've got to remember in 1979, networked computers are pretty much the province of military personnel and then then big universities. But in this context, uh, some of the old commonplaces about what a university is for and what knowledge is, and how we determine whether something being produced is good knowledge or something else are falling by the wayside. Now, Leotard develops the language of meta-narratives to describe those sort of large ideas that make sense of the production of knowledge. So the two that he really digs into, one of them is the meta-narrative of speculation, and this is sort of Hegel's idea that as the human species is the part of the world that thinks about the world that therefore those organizations and institutions of research of the production of knowledge are actually the highest fulfillment of, of of the human function. Uh, Humanity actually has a function in the universe and therefore it is worthwhile to do research in physics, chemistry, history, philosophy, so on and so forth. Now the other big meta narrative that he talks about is the metanarrative of emancipation. And within that emancipation metanarrative, the idea is that universities exist so that by means of education, the people of that nation can be emancipated from the old ideas, the bad thoughts, so on and so forth, uh, that used to hold them in bondage. Now, in the postmodern moment, according to Leotard, you get an incredulity towards those metanarratives. So people stop believing that things that you know people claim are universal knowledge are really universal on one hand. And then they also start to doubt whether what nation-states call emancipation is really any sort of freedom that extends to all of humankind. So out of this postmodern moment that Leotard talks about, on the one hand what you get is sort of a plurality of knowledges instead of a singular knowledge. So in other words – you actually have strong dispute about what counts as knowledge in the first place. Then, on the other hand, you get uh, what I talked about in our meta modernism episode. Uh, you get the post colonial movement, where you get a strong movement of questioning whether or not the Enlightenment at its roots, and then later on, the age of imperialism, where really most of the world's pro- uh, population is brought under the rule of one of the Enlightenment powers, uh, whether those things are really good for human beings in the first place. All right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and that's that's all the more lecturing I'm going to do about this. I will say that I wrote a blog post recently on Leotard where I go into a little bit more detail. Uh, but then, Michael, I, yeah. Yeah,
0: I actually have a question for you. I, yeah, have, go ahead. I've read the excerpt from the postmodern condition that gets printed in anthologies that print that sort of thing. Sure. But I know that there is a argument in the scholarship about whether Leotard is being prescriptive or descriptive because he's often taken to, to be celebrating this this turn of events. Do you do you think that's accurate? Do you think that Leotard oh, wow. do you think that Leotard himself is incredulous toward meta narratives? Because the postmodern condition is a report on knowledge, right? It's it's yeah, it's yeah. him on, on the barest level, it's just him being descriptive. Do you think that he's also being prescriptive?
1: Uh, my sense is that he's mainly being descriptive, uh, and here's why: because about the 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 third quarter of the book, if you if you would divide the essay into quarters, is really about uh, what Leotard sees as the primary danger of this postmodern moment, namely that in place of the meta-nerve of speculation, where you know humankind is developing knowledge because we're the part of the world that thinks about the world, or in place of the Meta narrative of emancipation where, you know, the the idea is that we are setting people free from their superstitions. He says that when those give way, there's never a power vacuum. Uh, But instead, you know, in the wake of the suspicion, very often what we get is something that Friedrich Nietzsche would call the will to power. So in other words, uh, we are no longer convinced that we are discovering the truth about the world. We're no longer convinced that we are Um, setting people free, so therefore he sees as a profound danger of this moment that it does become simply a contest of rival powers that are simply trying to impose their will on the world. Uh, So I'd say that Leotard's view is really fairly balanced, and he sees a lot of the problems in the postmodern moment that later critics would latch on to.
0: Have you read anything else by Leotard?
1: No, I have not. Me neither. No, I have not. So. I have The
0: Inhuman has been sitting on my shelf for 6 years at least and I have not uh-huh. read it. So I, I I I'm just I'm just curious cuz he usually gets classified as one of the three high priests of postmodernism. With two other guys, we're going to talk about here in a minute. And, um, right, right. right. <laughs> and 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 I've always wondered that if 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 that essay is just as descriptive as he says, how much does he deserve that title? But I guess you can you couldn't know that unless you've read enough Leotard to make a statement about his overall. Corpus. Right, right.
1: So, but that one essay, like I said, I mean, is very much a a piece of I, I would call it cultural analysis rather than a manifesto. Gotcha. Well, Michael, I'd like to engage with. Uh, a couple of writers whose publications actually precede the postmodern condition, Uh, I think of the postmodern movement as taking on not one project, but at least three, two of those being Jacques Derrida's and one of them being Michel Foucault's. Again, just for the sake of some intellectual topography, tell us a little bit about how each writer's aims differ from the others, and if you're inclined, whether or how each of them relates to what Leotard was about.
0: And actually we should say it it, it ends up – even if you're just including these three figures, it ends up being about 45 different projects because I don't think it's fair to say that Foucault or Derrida stick to a single project throughout their intellectual careers. Oh, true enough, true enough. But we'll talk about the kind of comic book version of Derrida and and Foucault. (laughs) i 'm um, start with Foucault because I think he 's actually a little easier to understand. Um, Foucault begins his career as a structuralist um, oh and structuralism is one of those things that 's not terribly easy for me to define, so i 'm going to give it a shot and you can you can butt in and, and help me out. Um, but structuralism I, I believe says that human society at the very least has a structure that can be discovered. And and the purpose of sociological research or philosophical research or literary criticism or linguistics in the case of Ferdinand de Saussure or, or, I mean, we could even include somebody like Freud in here and say the purpose of psychoanalysis is to discover the structure of human society and then presumably to benefit human beings by it. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do, I, do you think I have that about right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, one of the other figures I, I think of as central to this is Carl Jung and his idea yeah. that mythology has a common structure across cultures.
0: Also, Levi Strauss, Claude Levi Strauss, who's yeah. a who's mm-hmm. an, who's an anthropologist, very very much very clearly believes this. If you if you've read him, and uh, also uh, another guy who would become much more famous as a postmodernist, Roland Barthes. Mm-hmm. Um, his his first book I don't even think it's his first one but one of his early books, Mythologies is very much in this structuralist position he's examining culture for these myths that permeate it so he looks at like professional wrestling and stuff like that mm-hmm. anyway, Foucault starts out as a structuralist and over time he becomes what's called a post-structuralist at least partially under the influence of Derrida although those two don't like each other very much I think they were originally friends and they had a big falling out for reasons I don't quite understand Except mm-hmm. that both of them, let's uh, let's be honest, seem like they would be difficult to hang out with.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> so Foucault's
1: yeah, – ro- Road trip to Florida.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Derrida yeah. uh, or Dar- Foucault?
1: Uh-huh. Oh,
0: man. Depends uh-huh. on whether you're a man or a woman.
1: <laughs> there you
0: go. So, so, one of Foucault's big interests is the way that power—maybe his biggest influence—is the way that power manifests itself in society. And so, his most famous series of books involves a look at the medical industry and its history, a look at the uh, penal industry and its history, and a look at the history of madness. And so, also a history of the mental institution as an industry. And his his idea seems to be that these three industries are examples of the way that society puts power on other people. And in fact, he does not believe there's any, as far as I know, I'm no expert on Foucault, but as far as I know, he does not believe there's any sort of human relationship that is is, is not in some sense an imposition of power. And most interestingly, this includes your relationship with yourself, right? Because one Mm -hmm. of the ways you build a self is by... Discipline, which is power. So if you want to be a better student, you force yourself to read and study for two and a half hours a day or whatever. Well, that right. is that is you exerting power over yourself, just like the, the penal system exerts power over the prisoners, um, which means that power is not exactly a bad thing for Foucault. Um, because mm-hmm. I, th- I think the, the sort of power that you would exercise over yourself to make yourself more like the sort of person you'd like to be, I think he would see that as a good thing. And so, again, in, in Foucault studies, there is some debate over whether Foucault is being descriptive or prescriptive, whether he's saying, well, this is this is the structure of society. Here's the powers that exert themselves on everybody, and, you know, there's not much you can do about it except be aware of it, or whether he's saying, let's tear it down, you know. And I, I tend to believe that he is not saying let's tear it down. He's saying let's be aware right, of it right. and let's let's put ourselves under the powers that are going to be beneficial.
1: Right. Yeah. I do. I do read him as being mainly descriptive, but he's definitely descriptive in what I would call a very pessimistic vein. Yes. Uh, so, in other words, there is no horizon for Foucault where. You sort of transcend this, you know, power dynamic where one group is getting the upper hand on the other, but rather the only goods that can arrive are when the better group gets power over the worse group.
0: And, and you know, um, one of Foucault's favorite things to do is to look at a situation where it seems as though human society has progressed, has gotten better, and just say, well really what you 're dealing with is the exact same power dynamic with different terms, and so the the book I know the best is discipline and punish and he looks at He looks at society, Western society 's move from punishment from uh, if you commit a crime, we are going to hurt you or kill you to punish you for the crime to a disciplinary system wherein um, we 're going to send you to prison and you 're going to go undergo a series of exercises for however long you're in prison, and it will make you a better, more productive member of society. Well, mm-hmm. one way of looking at that change is to say, hey, society's gotten so much better. We have so much more mercy on these people, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Foucault's point seems to be in Discipline and Punish, that in fact, those are the same power dynamic, it's just new terms, and so nothing's really changed. So Foucault utterly rejects the idea of progress.
1: Right, um, right. And and Stephen Greenblatt, who we've uh we've taken shots at on this podcast before. I won't lie. uh He tells a funny story at the beginning of one of his uh books of literary criticism where he the first time he read Foucault, he said you know he read this painfully detailed description of you know drawing and quartering uh and you know all of the horrendous biological uh specifics of it uh and then Foucault went on to describe you know the modern correctional facility. Uh, where they, you know, give you a high school education and so on and so forth. And Greenblatt says it occurred to me at some point that when he was talking about drawing and quartering, Foucault was talking about the good old days.
0: Yeah, a little bit because I mean, <laughs> think of Marx in, in in the Communist Manifesto. Marx and Engels talk about how, well, you know, the history of all societies has been the history of class struggle, and, and they say it was bad for the serfs, but at least it was out in the open. And, right. and and so the sort of oppression you get in a modern industrialized state is just as bad or worse, and it's hidden because we're all supposed to say what a wonderful state we live in.
1: Uh uh-huh. Uh uh-huh. So
0: I, I think Foucault, who very obviously influenced by Marx, as or almost every major intellectual, it's twentieth century. Let's be, let's be honest. Um, Foucault is going along with that and, and saying, well, at least in the in the disciplinary or in the in the in the punishment era, they're honest about what they're doing. It's it's a right. it's a bald exertion of power. No pun intended on Foucault, who looked a little <laughs> bit like Nosferatu.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and even more so than Marx, Michael, I see an influence from Friedrich Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals there.
0: Right. So one of one of Foucault's famous pieces is called uh, Nietzsche History Genealogy, where he kind of lays out the rules for what he does in those other books he mm-hmm. writes. And and he, he talks about how the goal of a genealogy, and, and we'll probably come back to this over and over again, the goal of genealogy as opposed to history is not to supply a straight line. He's talking about intellectual history, right? You're not looking at the way an idea evolves over time. What you're looking at instead is for all these different sources an idea comes from, and so and if history, at least in the Hegelian sense of history, sees history as a line, however crooked, um, Foucault's, Foucault's genealogy is going to see history as a kind of web. And I, yeah, you know, yeah. that web, the web metaphor is one that's indispensable for any understanding of postmodernity.
1: Right. And so every contradiction in history doesn't result in a revolutionary explosion. More often than not, the contradictions in history result in quieter, more subtle contradictions.
0: Right. Yeah. And and there's no there's no line upwards. Instead, there's 45 lines in every direction. And, right. and there's no way to orient yourself to say, well, this not only is there no line upward, there's no way to even say what upward is.
1: Right, because whoever is in power says what upward is.
0: Yeah. My wife, I should say, is, is a, a pretty strong Foucauldian.
1: Yeah, it, it depends on when you catch me. Because, I, <laughs> I mean, on a broad metaphysical level, I find him pessimistic and depressing. Uh, but on the other hand, I think he's good medicine when you're confronting a very strong ideological position.
0: Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, I, what I don't like in him is this insistence that all human relationships are about the exertion of power.
1: Right, and that's the pessimism I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. So I, I I like to hold out some hope that there is a post-power relationship.
1: Yeah, but, yeah. But maybe not. <laughs> right, and, and even possibly that the kingdom is among you already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know – Hey, this is the Christian Humanist podcast. We can do a little Bible, right?
0: Fair, fair enough. <laughs> so we spent a- we spent 10 minutes on Foucault. I don't think I'm going to be able to talk that long about Derrida, not because he doesn't have 10 minutes worth of stuff to talk about, but because he's very, very difficult to understand. Um, and I usually feel like I get about 10% of it.
1: All right. Well, I'll, I'll try to supplement here. That's a grammatology joke.
0: Oh, I see. I haven't read it. I've read parts of, of grammatology. Like, I've read parts yeah. of everything else. It,
1: sorry. One of the essays in that collection is the, I believe, The Dangerous Supplement, although that's in my office, and I haven't been in my office since Snowpocalypse started. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Derrida makes his name as a literary critic, and, and it's quite a name. Um, depending on who you ask, he single-handedly destroys structuralism with this lecture he gives in, I think it's 1967 at Johns Hopkins, maybe 68. A lot. He has a lot of works that come out in 68. Mm-hmm. Um, so late 60s, and it's supposedly this lecture just single-handedly makes structuralism untenable. And his notion – oh, man, there's so many different – again, we're back to the web. There's so many different places to start with Derrida, and it's never clear where any of them are exactly going. Mm-hmm. Um, but his basic idea is what he calls différence, and the great thing about the word différence is that it's a, it's a joke that only makes sense in writing. So the French word difference is spelled D-I-F-F. Um, what do you call the E with the accent mark? The E with the accent mark R-A-R-E-N-C-E, <laughs> just like our word difference, except it has an accent mark over the E. But when when Derek um, I uses that term différence, he is he's substituting an a for the the uh, next to last e in difference which is in french is pronounced exactly the same way so it's a joke that only makes sense in writing and he uses this term difference to mean well for one thing he doesn't want you to be able to pin down exactly what it means so if you hear me <laughs> if you hear me pause when i'm explaining this assume that the real meaning of difference lies in that pause Uh, But I guess the best way to explain it is that language has a tendency to contradict itself. Language uh, contains so many multitudes that it is – you can't possibly pin it down. And so he has a very famous explication of – close reading, really. It's like, what, 100 pages on um, Plato's Phaedrus and really just Mm -hmm. on the last quarter of Plato's Phaedrus, the, the part about writing. Yeah. Um wherein Socrates uses this word pharmakon to describe writing and pharmakon as it turns out in Greek can be translated either as poison or cure. So what on earth does it mean when when Socrates calls writing a pharmacon. Well, there's no way to really be sure. It means both of those things and neither of them. But you can't hold on to both meanings at once. So what you really get, um, sorry, Nathan, is this uh, rapid oscillation. So um, (laughs) the way I describe this to my students is by using the famous optical illusion of the figure that looks like both a rabbit and a duck. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't invent this. This is the standard way to talk about Derrida, I believe. But the, the rabbit and the duck... You can't see both of them at once, but neither can you fix the meaning on either one of them. And so the meaning, um, first you see the rabbit, and then as you focus on the rabbit, the duck makes itself clear, and you look at that instead. Derrida's point is this is how language works, that, mm-hmm. that language is impossible to pin down. And then as soon as you think you have it pinned down, another meaning kind of slips out. So language is a bar of soap, right? And the, the tighter you squeeze it, the faster it's going to fly away from you. And so everything is constantly in flux. He's building here off the ideas of Saussure, the, uh, the French structural linguistics, uh, linguist rather. But Saussure didn't go nearly as far as Derrida does, because Derrida goes so far as to say that the entire Western system of metaphysics is this same way, B- because it's built on language. Because, as he says, I won't try to say it in French. Um, there's there is nothing outside of the text. Everything is interpretation. Thus, everything is constantly moving the way the rabbit and the duck are constantly moving. This is Mm different. And, you know, there's a million other things in that essay that, uh, that, that aren't quite encapsulated by anything I just said. And, again, he has a career that's 30 years long and in which he seems to engage with nearly every major philosopher of the Western tradition.
1: Right, right.
0: But this is his – this seems to be his underlying assumption that meaning is such a slippery thing that there's no way to pin it down.
1: hmm Yeah, so I mean if I can summarize real quick and you can tell me if I have reduced it so far that it's not true, Michael. Well, he uh, like,
0: like he's like Heidegger, right? In, in any Any kind of paraphrase of Derrida does violence to Derrida.
1: Right. Oh, and I'm not going to try to paraphrase. I'm just going to say that as far as focus goes – Uh, What Foucault is doing is he's taking a progressive notion of history, and he is saying, let's not be too hasty about that. What Derrida is doing is taking a sort of correspondence notion of language and saying, let's not be too hasty about that.
0: Right. No, I think that's accurate.
1: And, and, again, I'm doing that largely for our listeners because, again, Foucault and Derrida, you're not talking about a book each. You're talking about a bookshelf each. One, uh, wonderful
0: books, by the way. I mean Derrida I can't vouch for because Derrida is so difficult to read that that he's not for everybody. Foucault is a, a great pleasure to read as far as 20th century philosophers go. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you haven't read Foucault, go pick up Discipline and Punish and enjoy it as much as you can enjoy a book about the penal system.
1: Yeah, and and I will say in in praise of Derrida that I mean if you are a person who enjoys Plato and you've been told that Derrida is is his great enemy, uh, au contraire, mon frère. Uh, actually, what's going on is a lot of Derrida's most famous essays are, as Michael just said, very close readings of Plato's dialogue. which
0: he, which despite what you've heard, he treats with great respect because oh, absolutely, Der, Derrida is very very interesting because he he is in some ways the great enemy of the Western tradition, right? He's trying to overturn 3,000 years' worth of metaphysics.
1: Sure, sure.
0: On the other hand, nobody loves the Western tradition more than Derrida.
1: <laughs> right, right. So in some ways, and I've made this argument, and I mean I've almost gotten punched in the teeth making the argument, in some ways he is a Latter-day Socrates.
0: Well, and, you know, what's interesting is now that this new biography is it, Benoit Peters, I think the guy's name is, some, some uh-huh. French fellow. Um, <laughs> the, the new Derrida bi- biography apparently argues, among other things, that Derrida is kind of conservative in weird ways.
1: Oh, sure he is. Sure he is.
0: But, but I mean, 15 years ago, if you'd gone into an English department let, um, of any stripe, a, a Derridian one or an anti derridian one, and said, Derrida's is kind of conservative in some ways, they would have thrown you out.
1: Oh sure, sure. <laughs> but I guess
0: now that I guess now that he's dead and the academy's kind of moved on, we're allowed to well and also recognize
1: right since postmodern has in some circles become the enemy of progressivism. Yeah, it's safer to say that about Derrida.
0: He's he is conservative in in a way that I think is is good though because he really does want to conserve the Western tradition, but only by cutting it up and rearranging it.
1: Yeah, yeah. In other words, actually taking it on his own terms rather than forgetting the bits that are inconvenient.
0: You know, I was reading, um, Hannah Arendt has an essay about Walter Benjamin. Yeah. And, and she she compares Benjamin to a guy, to a pearl diver in, in this sense. The Western tradition is handed down to us like a pearl necklace where where the, the order of the pearls is authoritative. Uh-huh. But the 20th century smashes the pearl necklace. So you okay. still have the pearls, and they're scattered. And ben job, and I think Derrida's job too, to some extent, is to pick up those pearls, and that means that you're not going to get all of them, and you're not going to put them in the same order, and the string's never going to be there again. But you're you're preserving what's really valuable. Hmm. So in in that sense, I think Derrida is a conservative, just like ben is a conservative. Right. Although I don't. Or think...
1: these the, these fragments I have shored up against my ruins.
0: Right. Right. <laughs>
1: And that was T.S. Eliot, by the way, listeners.
0: I thought you were telling me.
1: Oh, I... <laughs> that, 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 not all of our listeners are Americanists. <laughs>
0: or Britishists.
1: Oh, yeah, I forget Eliot's claimed by both.
0: There's there's <laughs> an argument for you, huh?
1: Oh, goodness. yeah. Well, yeah, because I... I here's why, because in Emmanuel College's literature sequence, T.S. Eliot gets taught in American lit, which strikes me as just weird but
0: <laughs> i studied him in american but um the huh. he he considered himself british so i understand that that's kind of not fair
1: yeah and i guess because i've heard him uh the recordings of him reading his own poetry in that awful affected london accent
0: oh poor t.s. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh i think he's doing all right um so, well, so I, mean, I mean i mean we we yeah. talked
0: about this a little bit in modernism uh-huh. i i don't want to waste our elliot reference here um, we talked about this a little in the, in the meta modernism episode, actually, uh, which, yeah. which is that the, the, the modernists tend to look at the fragmentation of Western culture and mourn it. And the postmodernists tend to look at it and say, woohoo. <laughs> and, and I would actually go even further and say that Derrida looks at the fragmentation of the 20th century and says, man, that doesn't go far enough. Right,
1: right. Yeah, and, and you know, that's why, again, a lot of his essays are close reading to Plato. He wants to say that deconstruction goes all the way down.
0: But for that reason, reading him, you sometimes get the feeling that he's somehow demonic, and you sometimes get the feeling that he's somehow the greatest person you've ever read. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the rabbit and the duck, you have to kind of oscillate between those two responses.
1: Right, right. Well, anyway, I I, I want to keep our focus a little bit here on Christian responses to postmodernism. That's kind of going to be our theme here. So, Michael, one of the big responses to postmodernism, especially to Derrida and Foucault, among evangelical Christians has been utter rejection, Uh, the sort of reception that a Darwin would have gotten in the 19th century or Karl Marx. Uh, What are the big-picture objections that such Christians had to these postmodern projects and to what extent and in what ways would you mark such a, objections as valid ones or invalid ones?
0: Well, I mean, for one thing, it's worth noting, these guys are atheists. And and while I don't think either one of them is exactly hostile to Christianity, Foucault certainly, I, I can't imagine a world in which he had anything nice to say about the church. I have not read History of Sexuality, which is where I think he talks most openly about The church, and I'm sure he talks about the sort of power it exerts over human sexuality. Um, Derrida has this weird mystical streak that emerges late in his career, but even then, he doesn't affirm anything that looks like evangelical Christianity, right? Because evangelical Christianity, in a lot of ways, is built on the very foundations Derrida is trying to undermine the foundations of 19th century enlightenment. Well, second Enlightenment, rationalism. Uh huh. Right. So it makes sense that they would distrust those guys. Um, Derrida's famous quote, by the way, is I can rightly be taken as an atheist.
1: Oh, good. Which is yes. as Derrida
0: <laughs> a sentence as there is and kind of wonderful. You, I, I kind of love that. I'll take that over Dawkins anyway.
1: I will agree with that. I will agree with I, that. I can,
0: I can be rightly taken as an atheist. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I, I think one thing they respond to is that these guys are openly of the other ca- of the other camp. Mm-hmm. Um. Although you you don't see nearly as much rejection of somebody like Bertrand Russell.
1: Right. Right.
0: Who is uh, even? Well, yeah. Go ahead.
1: Oh no, no, no! I was just going to say that. I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, on an intellectual historical front, uh, because one of the things that you know just blows my mind in a lot of ways is that in a in a lot of cases the objections against what I would think of as Foucaultian postmodernism, especially in the the arena of gender often take on the vocabularies of Darwin and Freud to counter it.
0: Well, that's true, because because the enemy of my enemy is my friend.
1: Right, right. well, and also, I mean, you know, that which is one generation's revolutionary becomes the next generation's establishment.
0: Yeah, fair enough, just like Derrida's a conservative now.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, and, and we're going to talk about that more later, right? you know, don't worry about that, but, I mean, I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, uh, in their moment, I mean, they were, as you say, of the other camp, uh, and they were, you know, basically irredeemable in a lot of eyes, and they still are in a lot of eyes. I don't want to pretend that that's gone away. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things where you know it, it makes the study of intellectual history very worthwhile, and I would say very rewarding uh, to watch how certain figures, especially cats like the Enlightenment empiricists, like the 19th century biologists, uh, and then later on, you know, like I've said, as the postmoderns. Uh, make that shift from the dangerous enemy to the people that we can appropriate.
0: Yeah. I wonder who and the I, dangerous enemy is today.
1: The I new, new I, atheist. I, I, I think we're waiting for the next one because right now we're recycling the old ones. Gotcha. <laughs>
0: so, I mean, <laughs> and, well, th- and I mean,
1: with regards to that, I mean, that's why you can get Christians writing things like, you know, faith and science are not enemies. And I always want to say, well, in 1855, they were, you know, I mean, there's just no way around that. We're in a different historical moment from what we were, you know, when Darwin was active and publishing.
0: But the the, the trick is to when you're living in the world with the two sides to be able to stand in one camp and say, well, here's what the other guys get right.
1: Absolutely. Which
0: I'm sure there were people doing that for – Derrida and Foucault in the 1970s, Christians who were doing that, but really uh-huh. that doesn't happen until the late 90s on a large right. scale, right? Which right. I know we'll get to in a few minutes. Um, we
1: will. We will. The
0: other, re- the other big reason evangelicals reject these postmodernism in general. I don't even want to say Derrida and Foucault because I don't yeah. think most most um, evangelicals are familiar enough with, with them to reject them. Uh huh. But as anybody who's taught at a Christian college knows. What postmodernism means is moral relativism. Anything oh, goes. Goodness. It's true for you and not for <laughs> me. And, yes, and, and and that for a variety of reasons has been attached to postmodernism as a movement. And so, if we want to be able to claim that that Christian morality is universal morality, we're going to have to reject postmodernism along with relativism. Well, I mean, I think we talked about this. Um, in some detail in the pragmatism episode from last year. Uh-huh. Yeah. But the sort of relativism that is promoted by um, postmodern theorists is is a pretty intellectually and spiritually complex relativism that is not at all, it can be true for you, but not for me, man. You right. Know, it's not right. this college freshman relativism. And it, it may still be or worth Or college reject. senior. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, I think you, <laughs> you said that on that episode too. Yeah. But but um, it, I'm not saying it shouldn't be rejected. But I'm saying your reasons for rejecting it have to be intellectually as intellectually complicated and and spiritually complicated as as what you're rejecting. Otherwise, otherwise you're rejecting something because you don't understand it. Fair enough. Am I leaving something out, or other? You you were kind of. I'm not calling you old, but you're a few years older than me. And you were you were kind of <laughs> you were in college. Uh, In in the 90s, when this was still a huge thing, and I I was there later when it had had started to cool down a bit.
1: Right. Well, I mean, part of it was that I was taught my theology and philosophy by people who were themselves influenced by postmodernism. So in my formal education, it was a positive thing. I didn't learn that I wasn't supposed to like it until later.
0: Yeah, and see, I, I went into it, I read it for the first time, knowing that it was, quote-unquote, knowing that it was like the great enemy of Christianity. And then right. then when I began to be unable to answer some of the things Derrida says, because if you, if you pay close enough attention so there's nothing outside the text, it's mm-hmm. very difficult to argue against that. There, there, yeah. it, it's very, very difficult to see it any other way. Uh, and, and I, I had this really major crisis of faith because of it, and it's only in the last... Five or ten years that I've I've been able to to kind of reconcile those things and recognize there's there's a way to be faithfully Christian and say there's nothing outside the text.
1: Well, Michael, the third stream of postmodernism that I'd like to think on together runs through Hans georg Gottimer, through George Lindbeck, Alistair McIntyre, uh, eventually Stanley Hauerwas, and uh, David Bentley Hart. Uh, And really into the Christian thinkers from whom I've most benefited in my intellectual career. Again, pointing back to Leotard, what connection do these postmoderns, often considered the conservative postmoderns, have to Leotard's the postmodern condition? In what ways do they differ from the Foucault and Derrida projects in their broad strokes that we've talked about before?
0: I'm going to do my best here, and you can again correct me if I'm if I get some stuff wrong. Um, so, if we divide the world into three eras, the pre-modern, the modern, and the post-modern, the pre-modern ends, let's say, about halfway through uh, Meditations on First Philosophy by Descartes. <laughs> okay. And and the post-modern. The postmodern begins when the bomb is dropped in Hiroshima, or whatever other date you'd like to choose. Maybe Derrida giving the lecture at Johns Hopkins. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Oh, you know what's the what's the Charles Jinks one? The uh, the buildings, the buildings, uh, the pruitt Ego buildings falling down. Whatever date you give. Sure. Um, you have to conceive of postmodernism as a reaction to modernism. Uh, those meta-narratives that Leotard talks about. It's interesting to me that he doesn't. Talk about Christianity as a meta narrative, even though certain forms of Christianity certainly are a meta narrative. What he talks about are meta narratives that really are developed during the Enlightenment, during the the high point of the modern era. So, uh, if if we define postmodernism over and against modernism, if it's a rejection or a modification of modernism, it would make sense that a certain number of these folks are instead of looking forward, because again, if you don't really believe in progress, how are you going to look forward, Mm -hmm. are looking backwards. And so you get somebody like McIntyre, who I know that you and I both admire and Danny makes fun of you for it, Um, (laughs) McIntyre is a guy who is really trying to revive a pre-modern ethical system for the 21st century, or 20th century, I suppose, right at the end of the 20th century. He's, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's trying to update it for the modern era. And, and in some ways, that's not all that different from what Derrida's doing, right? Because Derrida's solution to the arrogance of the modern age is to go back and read Plato in a new way. Mm MacIntyre, I don't think, would get along with Derrida very well, and I don't think he would say he's necessarily reading Aristotle in a new way, just that he's reading him at a new time, and so it's definitely going to be a little different. But I I, I think in some ways their projects are similar. Now, Mm -hmm. Gadamer and Derrida apparently had a huge falling out about the appropriate way to interpret literature, and Derrida said after Gadamer died that it was the great sadness of his life that that they weren't able to patch up their differences and be friends hmm. but i maybe it was the other way around i can't remember which one of them died first derrida died in 2004 yeah i don't remember when gadamer died anyway they nor do i they they they, they uh they they had a big disagreement about the proper method of interpreting literature because gadamer's more conservative than derrida on this gadamer um talks about uh, actually probably my favorite metaphor for interpreting literature ever. He talks about the interpretation of literature being a little bit like playing a symphony in that there are parameters you have to keep to. You can't just go anywhere and say you're playing a symphony – but on the other hand, every different performance is going to sound different, and it's going to sound different under different conductors and different violinists and w- whatever. You know, it's 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 different, but it's still the same piece. And, and you know, he says interpreting literature is a lot like that. Which, if you've read much literary criticism from the era leading up to the '60s when Gadamer is writing, uh, that's pretty remarkable because the movement in literary criticism is to look more like the Enlightenment, to look more mm-hmm. scientific to, you know, be, frankly, incredibly boring and not particularly helpful for anybody's <laughs> life. Um, Gadamer has this radical idea that the interpretation of literature can be a moral activity somehow, as well as an artistic activity in, in its own right. And I, I do think that reaches back a little bit more toward the past. Although, I, I mean, one of the points I make when I teach literary criticism is that, if if what you're looking for in, in, in literary criticism is a large number of different interpretations that all coexist at the same time, Dante gives you that, right? Is, oh, sure, in, sure. The letter to Con Grande where he talks about the four different levels of interpretation. I mean, that is itself a very old idea. Now, Derrida goes much further with it, but I think he and Gadamer may be more alike than they realized.
1: Right. I, well, I for that matter, I mean, Augustine's notion of the literal and the allegorical reading –
0: Right, so no, no need. We can go back even further than Dante. Mm-hmm. So I, I think those guys are postmodern in the sense that they are rejecting modernism. And and again, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I don't tend to think of them as terribly postmodern. I tend to think of them as revivalists uh, okay. of a sort, and especially McIntyre and maybe less so Godemar, who who seems so Heideggerian to me in other ways. Right. I, I have not read Lindbeck, so I, I'm going to have to let you talk about him
1: okay that's all right i mean one qualification i would make on uh mcintyre and again i I do this largely because i'm i'm always in conversation with the homebrew christianity guys who do accuse him of trying to reach back into the past he states very blatantly in after virtue that there is no reaching back to the past right that what you're always doing is moving forward it's always using the materials you've got to construct something new uh so i I just want to make sure that I get that in there just in case Trip Fuller or Bo Sanders is listening. No, you don't have one up on me there.
0: And no, I, you know, I knew that, and I'm sorry I misrepresented him.
1: No, that's all right. If, if that fight weren't going on, I wouldn't have to make that point.
0: You know, the the other thing that, that McIntyre does that I think is interesting and in postmodern in, in, in its way is he suggests instead of broad – um, so, if, if you think about the way morality works during the Enlightenment, you have the, the two major viewpoints the deontological. Uh, ethics represented by Kant where you have a list of duties you, you perform and you, you have to do them whether regardless of your circumstances. Or you have consequentialism, which is supposedly all about circumstance, but really instead of a list of duties, you just have this one duty. Uh, in the sense of utilitarianism, it's to promote the greatest happiness of the masses. These are right. both huge, overarching ethical systems that claim to be universal. McIntyre's virtue ethics are in fact quite local. In that yeah. sense, they they belong to particular practices, to particular communities, and thus make no claim to be universal, let alone to give you a mode for always acting in any particular way.
1: Right. And for that, you can point to the famous last line of after virtue. Uh, we find ourselves waiting not for uh, Godot, uh, but rather for, you know, a new. Well, no, no, no. Strike that. Strike that. What we are waiting for, here we go, now I'm going to get it, uh, again, this book is in my office, my apologies, is not for a new Trotsky, but for a new and no doubt very different St. Benedict.
0: Right, because because what you're looking for is this community within which to practice the virtues that make you the sort of person you want to be.
1: Right, and you're not going to impose it on an empire because that's not our moment, but you might be able to gather together a community uh, that is governed by a common desire rather than a common fear of force.
0: And I'll tell you this, once you've read McIntyre, it's very difficult to go back and read the utilitarians, for example, on the subject yeah. of ethics and take them seriously uh, because they seem so dry and calculating. And McIntyre's ethics is an ethics that breathes, you know, and, and there's a heartbeat and there's actual people you're dealing with instead of numbers. And
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, anyway, we can bring those guys in as we talk about the next little bit. Uh, Danny, if there are Christians who reject postmodernism with extreme prejudice, there are also extremes of appropriation and assimilation among Christians. So, Danny, talk for a few minutes about those Christians who have been very eager to jump headfirst into postmodernism and say a bit about what dangers, if you see any, that seem inherent in that approach.
2: Well, um, I think in many ways I would build off of what michael was just talking about and sort of the uh reaching back towards the traditions that we've been given and i feel like um in many cases some of the 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 expressions of christianity let me say that where you see a uh, uh a complete uh uh all in version of postmodernism, uh, sort of the home church movement I'm thinking of right now. And this is not to denigrate that, that movement, but um, they do sort of completely throw out all of the grand meta narratives, in, in, in Leotard's words, of, of Christian practice, I think, over the years. And so I feel like the danger for that, I mean, to answer your question directly, is that um, you sort of lose this guiding light. Uh, and in particular, I can sort of, if there is no sort of center to which we 're all returning um, culturally, now we all have the text the the, uh, the, the scripture to sort of guide us, but mm-hmm. um, as we all know that uh, the interpretation of that scripture is a key part of worship and if there is no sort of uh, consensus on uh, some a, a tradition a tradition based consensus uh, with regards to that scripture, what is to keep say uh, let 's just go back to the home church movement here. Um, as an example, uh, what is to keep the grandfather church uh, or the grandson church, I'm sorry, of the, of the first home church to still be on the same um, path. Like like who knows what their Christianity will look like and has it drifted into uh, heretical uh, beliefs. Uh, And so like, to me, the, the relativism that many uh, conservative Christians fear about uh, postmodernism that we probably talked about before. Uh, I feel like they, uh, uh, on some way, in some ways, can be that could be a, a well-founded fear uh, in in some some uh, some uh, specific examples. And also, uh, without the this sort of handing down of this meta narrative like tradition um, of, of Christian thought, um, um, what is left to sort of define? Uh, the faith culturally is in some ways indistinguishable from consumerism. And, and I feel like that's one thing about uh, the world we live in that what fuels postmodern is also well-defined as consumerist. And, and and I feel like that that sort of lack of uh coherent center that defines postmodernism uh, for many people is, uh, uh, is a danger that churches can fall into uh, where what feels authentic is actually just sort of uh, easy and and attractive. And I feel like that, that is one way I would sort of start to answer that question.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Michael, what would you add?
0: I would want to know how that's different than the general Protestant situation. If, if the essence of Protestantism and and maybe I'm wrong about the essence of Protestantism, but if the essence of Protestantism is that any, any individual reader can read the Bible and understand what it means and interpret it for himself What's to keep the grandfather in the in the church from being different than the grandson? I, I think well, the, I think the relativism people are afraid of has existed since Luther, at least.
2: Absolutely, I think though that it's it's uh, it's slowed up a bit. I mean, just institutional structures, I think, get in the way of that to some degree, for better and worse. I would say. I would also add that and, and emphasize that. But I do. I also think though that um, theoretically, that's always been sort of the Protestant ethos. But uh, in practice, has that ever been really the case uh, where we, we just look at Scripture uh, like in, in any sort of Protestant descri- uh, tradition? Uh, I feel like uh, there's always some sort of uh, gatekeeping kind of guidance that comes with the, the religious practice.
0: I'll
1: go ahead. No, you go ahead,
0: Nathan.
1: Uh, I was going to say, I mean, even within Luther's own lifetime, uh, when he beheld the radical Protestant revolt at Munster – uh, I mean, he very promptly wrote that off as, okay, that's not what I was about. That's that's not what I meant at all. I'm just all over Elliot today. Uh, but, you know, the, the idea that Danny's talking about, I mean, there was still enough uh, institutional structure there, even in the so-called breakaway churches, uh, that there was still, at the very least, a cultural inertia, even if there wasn't a formal authority binding it. I think... And, and honestly, this is where I think Leotard is at, at, at his sharpest. Uh, when he talks about the postmodern moment as coming about largely because of uh, cultural and more importantly, technological changes. Uh, when you've got networked computers and the speed of publication becomes nanoseconds instead of weeks and months, uh, you ju- you're just in a different moment historically. Uh, and this is where, I mean, you know, when the. Uh, nihil sub sole novum. People, the nothing new under the sun faction, tells me that nothing has changed in the last thirty years. Uh, I, I just can't help scratching my head at that.
0: So, you, so you guys are saying that that church splits are are happen more quickly in the postmodern era?
2: Um, I would, I not only more quickly, but I think that what gives them their common vocabulary and their their common sort of reason to being. Is something that's decidedly untraditional, and and it's sort of it's it very much can resemble consumerism. I'm trying to use hedging language. I don't want to cast very broad nets here, um, which I, I feel <laughs> like I feel like I tend to do that on the show, and I feel like I, I end up saying things that I don't necessarily mean. Uh, well, That's good. So, it gets
1: it gets listeners writing in. <laughs>
2: well, I, I would just
0: say, I would just say there's no escaping tradition, and so even even the even the loosest. Emergent churches are going to have some sort of interpretive structure that they impose on people.
2: Exactly. And I feel like that interpretive structure sometimes um, is uh, not out of a kind of seminarian, like studious mindset, but one from a kind of business church management model. Oh, I see uh, what and, you're
1: saying. Well, and I mean, to, to refer back to what Michael is referring to, namely that I, I'm oldest, dirt. Uh but, but you know, about a decade ago when I was one of the regulars on theooze.com, uh which was sort of one of the, the loci of, you know, postmodern Christianity there in the Bush years, uh it, it became a running joke of sorts that every I I forget what the span of time was, I think it was uh eight and a half weeks, there had to be a discussion thread about uh what is the nature of the com. what is the nature of the emergent conversation. Uh, and that you know that had to be relitigated every couple months rather than every you know several centuries or every few generations.
0: Well, I, I I can I I see I see your point about speeding up, and I see your point about consumerism.
1: Right. Well, and and I guess here, my and I am gonna I'm, I'm still gonna tilt at you here, Michael. I'm still gonna level my lance at your shield here, because I think that you do have a genuinely qualitative difference when that shift can happen several times within one human lifespan. Yeah. I mean, but, at that but, point, but what, I, really what I... I'm
0: saying is what I'm saying, I guess, is that the forces that make this happen have been there for a long time.
2: Right. right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Okay. And I think doesn't, uh, leotard imply at one point that technology is a big part of, of uh of this shift. Uh, oh, absolutely!
1: Shift. Yeah, that's the very first part of the essay.
2: Yeah, right. And, uh-huh. and so and so, this is like I feel like the nature of our technological world, uh, the fact that you can have a, a home church where you never even meet the person theoretically, you yeah. could just have Facebook home churches if you, if you would like to do such a thing. Which sounds right. horrifying, right.
0: doesn't it? Except it, it, sounds- just, <laughs> except I've never met you. <laughs> yeah. It's a good point.
1: <laughs> right. Or, I mean, to, to draw it into another sphere of human affairs, I mean, it's one thing to say that it's always been a danger to have a hunk of metal shoved through your innards. Uh, but something really changes when machine guns get invented. Yeah.
0: Yeah, war war changes, but at the same time it doesn't change.
1: Great. Oh, I, I, I would minimize that second part. But I mean, I'm I'm also going with you know Pope Benedict the 23rd here, so or 16th, whatever number he is, <laughs> the the one right before Francis. Oh, you mean
0: you're gonna you're gonna retire and move to
1: <laughs> no. What I'm, go, what I'm going to what I'm going to say is that uh, Thomas Aquinas's notion of a just war is unintelligible in an era of automatic firearms, which is a pretty close paraphrase of uh, Joseph Ratzinger. All right. So, well, at any rate, I'm looking at the clock here, and I'm also just begging you guys' pardon because I do have kids in the house today, so I've got to get this recording wrapped up. But, Michael, people love it when we get literary. So take a few minutes to talk about a novel, a graphic novel, or some other text in the broad Derridean sense uh, that exhibits postmodernism. And if you don't mind how it's helped you to think about some of the rather abstract notions that we've been tossing about today. And when you finished, send it around the horn to Danny.
0: I'm going to talk about a literary movement called metafiction, which is, um, I guess, at its broadest, fiction about the construction of fiction. And I think the the best uh, text that I know of in that genre is John Barth's uh, short story collection, Lost in the Funhouse, which comes out, uh, I'm sure, coincidentally, in 1968, the same year Derrida <laughs> writes Différence. And, and uh, the the story I'm, I'm most interested in that collection is one called Title, uh, wherein Bart tells a story, and then it's almost like he has stripped back the skin on the story and shown you the structure Underneath it, So, the, I mean, the story broadly follows this, like, it, it seems to be some sort of dissatisfied relationship. You know, it's hard to follow the plot for reasons that will be obvious in just a second. I'm going to read you a paragraph from the story. No turning back now. We've gone too far. Everything's finished. Name eight. Story, novel, literature, art, humanism, humanity, the self itself. Wait, story's not finished. And you and I, Howard, whispered Martha, her sarcasm belied by a hesitant alarm in her glance, flickering as it were despite herself to the blank instrument in his hand. Belied indeed. Put that thing away. And what does flickering modify? A person who can't verb-adverb ought to at least speak correctly. So, I, I mean, what, what you've got there is one part very standard plot about a couple breaking up, one part meditation on the collapse of the system of meaning that has sustained the West for so long, the sort of thing that we've, we've been talking about. And one part joke about what it's like to write a story. It, it, it kind of has this mad lib quality where he's, he's left blanks to put in words when he comes back and you constantly get the narrator telling you, he doesn't know how he's going to finish this. Oh, we're halfway done. Thank goodness. It's almost over. And, and all this fits into with what Barth calls uh, in an essay, the literature of exhaustion, the idea that the, Realist novel, like perhaps traditionalist metaphysics, has exhausted itself. It's it's turned back on itself. It's tired. And the only way to still use it, because he, like Derrida, wants to maintain the tradition in some way. But the only way is to vivify it by pointing out this structure and mocking this structure. And by simultaneously, by the way, as he points out this structure of the story, he also creates a new structure for the short story, which is this metafictive um, move Now, I have to say, uh, this is a lot of fun over 15 pages and kind of boring over the course of an entire book. I think metafiction gets old quickly, and if it's not done by someone who's an absolute master at it, it just seems like somebody trying to kill time. But uh, <laughs> I uh, I treasure that story title and uh, a good deal of Barth's work. Have either of you read Barth?
2: Yes, I've read Chimera.
0: Which I I haven't read. That one's like three novellas, right?
2: Yeah. Uh yeah, at least that. Yeah. There's they, uh, yeah.
0: They're related. I mean, every one of Barth's books is experimental in a different way, so he's he's a hard guy to pin down.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Well, I feel sort of like a Barthian character cast into the middle of this story um from nowhere uh today. And uh and so I will uh what I'll choose today though is uh for the text Actually, can I throw out two, if that's okay? Sure. Um, um, I was thinking about White Noise um, primarily, but also Blade Runner, the, the film, the Ridley Scott movie. And, and I feel like both of those, um, they do different things, very different things. Blade Runner questions what it is to be human, right, very uh, kind of explicitly. And uh, in a way that I think highlights the um, the, the emphasis in postmodernism on not epistemology, not how we perceive the world, but like what the nature of a world is in in, its, in itself. And so I feel like that's some of the playfulness of postmodernism that uh, distinguishes it from, from modernism. That's the reaction that Michael was talking about earlier today. And, and I feel like that movie, in addition to uh, entering into those questions, um, like White Noise... Uh, really, kind of latches on to the role of, of consumerism in our uh, in, as a as a thing with which we construct our world uh, is by the things that sort of we just assemble. And, and I feel like in White Noise, primarily, you have a book that's very much a campus novel. Um, uh, for at the beginning, uh, with the campus itself, feels like a pastiche of kind of this ideal college campus, and yet what goes on inside of this college is. What many people would say is sort of the worst of cultural studies. You have have people reading cereal boxes and and there's a a Department of Elvis studies. And then the main character is the chair of the Department of Hitler studies and all these sorts of things. (laughs) But he can't read German. And and he can't read German, right? And so it's very much this sort of parody of uh, the extension of this kind of almost indistinguishable – consumerism slash postmodernism. I, I'm not sure that novel for me distinguishes between those two things. Uh, and it's sort of a natural extension into the very site um, at which learning and thought is supposedly t- supposed to take place. Right. And so our very like means of thinking about our human condition is a part of the uh, the condition that we're trying to think about and and, and grapple with, uh, and so and and he was going to call the song the book sorry uh, Panasonic, which was uh, which means all noise right, but he was afraid of being sued by the company Panasonic, so uh, <laughs> it, it was named White Noise after that right, but, well, which but is, is a much better that, title
0: because you you get that you get is. that notion that it's like privileged white people making yes. noise. <laughs>
2: It's true. But w- the impression with both of those is you have this sort of mass of indistinguishable um, stimuli a- and nothing is, nothing is central in any of it because it's just, it's just white noise. It's Panasonic. And so uh, to me, those, that book and that movie both sort of work together uh, for me as a way to conceive the concern with uh, um, the postmodern condition.
0: You know, that book also has a wonderful parody of uh, Baudrillard, Jean Baudrillard, who we didn't talk about, but who's another major postmodernist. Uh, simulacrum. Thirst. Yeah, you get, simulacrum. you get Murray there prattling yes. on about the simulacrum.
2: Yes, and the barn, the picture of the barn, the, the most photographed barn in America and all this sort of thing. Yes.
0: Which simultaneously kind of co-ops Baudrillard and makes him into an insufferable ponce. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because, right. like, it, it's a legitimate reading of the novel, that simulacrum stuff. It works, but at the same time, it certainly does not make Baudrillard look like somebody you'd want to have, uh, spend any time with.
1: <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, the novel I'm interested in talking about is by – and you guys are Americanists. You have to tell me which of these pronunciations you use. Is it E.L. Dodaro or E.L. Doctor I would say Doctor I
0: always heard O.
1: That's how I'll say it then. Uh, His novel City of God uh, is not one that I usually hear when people talk about him, but it's a fascinating little sort of postmodern detective story uh, in which the main character uh, actually offends the narrator at some point, and the narrator basically runs off and the main character has to find a new narrator. Uh, which is fascinating in its own right. But then on top of that, you also get these little interludes, uh, some done in the style of Ludwig Ludwig Wittgenstein's um, Tractatus Philosophico Logicus, or Logico Philosophicus, it's the latter, Uh, some of them done in the style of Albert Einstein's prose, and then some of them in the character of Frank Sinatra. Uh, So, I mean, what you get – I mean, there's definitely a narrative – path that you can follow but as far as how you hear the narrative how you experience the narrative uh who's actually in the narrative uh it shifts as the novel moves along uh and ultimately i mean you know the the mystery remains unsolved at the end of course it does why would it be otherwise sure uh but (laughs) uh but you know ultimately the main character Uh, sort of ends the novel sort of contemplating the fact that uh, he stole the widow of the murder victim from the narrator and thus needed to get another narrator. (laughs) So, you know, very, very fun novel. Postmodern Uh,
0: novels tend to be fun.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Danny, what were you going to say? Well, there's a great
2: tradition of um, postmodern detective stories. I mean, because it's such yeah. Yeah. Pinch on. Um, I'm thinking of Paul Auster's uh, City of Glass and uh, Michael Chabon's Yiddish Policeman's Union recently, more recently. Uh, this You think of an, a genre that's all concerned with epistemology, the, the finding out of truth and taking that away from it and putting it into this like postmodern um, scenario. It just makes it a, a lot of fun. Uh, mm-hmm. I I think I've said on the show before, Jonathan Lethem Describes postmodernism as as modernism without the anxiety. So and so, I, I feel like that's sort of what you get there. All
0: right, all right. Yeah, you ought to you want to check out "Crying of Lot 49" by Penchon, Nathan, if you yeah. haven't read. Okay, that. that's a. I mean, well, it's a very pop culturally drenched book, but it's all pop culture from the fifties and sixties, so you won't have any problem with it. <laughs> um, that that is that is ostensibly a detective story about this gal who. Ends up going on this shaggy dog story, but like all shaggy dog stories, it just kind of meanders around, and she seems to encounter the hidden underbelly of everything in the entire world.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. It has to do with a, uh, a alternative postal conspiracy, know, <laughs> which is, which is, oh, which is awesome.
0: <laughs> I knew somebody I, in grad school who had the postal horn from Crying of Lot 49 tattooed on his arm.
2: I have it above the door in my in my office, and just like one student has ever asked me what it means.
1: Um, and so, yeah. nice.
2: If they'd read the credit. book,
0: they'd ask you about it carefully. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, guys, as is always the case with these big cultural phenomenon episodes, we've scarcely scratched the surface of what we could have discussed today. So, as we're headed out the door, Danny, uh, give us a brief word of wisdom about Christians can engage with the postmodern whether you see postmodernism as a question that's even a live one for Christians in 2014 or whatever else you see fit. So when you finish, throw that baseball to Michael and we'll take it around the horn and head for the exit.
2: Well, I think that what's great about postmodernism and I know that um, uh, I didn't get to defend it earlier before my first answer. um, But what's great about it is that it does sort of engage the reader of, of a text like, uh, in a way that uh, is, is like the, so that the, the story takes place in their head, right? And, and I feel like um, that engagement is a gift, really. And, and if we're willing to sort of just embrace that and, and not be so um, fearful of losing the center, what we'll find is that center remains, but it's just really enriched. And I'm thinking of, it's almost like um, and I'm sure someone has done work like this, uh, but it's almost like a Talmudic study in that way, where you have the scriptures and you have commentaries about the scriptures and then commentaries on the commentaries. And each of those commentaries are a document of, of a culture grappling with that scripture, that that sacred document uh, in a specific time and place. Right. And then other people grappling with their assumptions. And I feel like that is very akin to how I see postmodernism. Sort of enriching the lives of Christians is sort of thinking about it as this sort of never-ending set of questions that never get settled, uh, like a postmodern detective story, if you will. So uh, that that would be sort of my advice and my hope for my students.
0: I uh, uh, I, I like that a lot, Danny. Um my advice is short. It is Christianity is always under attack. It, is, it never fits in with the dominant spirit of the age. And that, it, that is whether you are postmodern or modern or premodern or metamodern or whatever else comes next. Uh, Christi- Christianity is never going to fit perfectly into any box. So that it doesn't fit perfectly should not surprise or shock shock us or make us angry. We should take what we want and... Keep on moving down the road. Nathan?
1: And if I had to give one word to sort of close out, uh, I actually kind of tipped my hat towards it earlier uh, because I I can't seem to hold on to my good thoughts till the end. Uh, but if you are inclined to think that, you know, Christianity is just an easy fit with Derrida, or for that matter, if you think that Christianity is an easy fit with Charles Darwin or for that matter, if you think that Christianity is an easy fit with sort of enlightenment rationality, uh just remember that historical moments come and they go. Uh and please try to look with some mercy on those folks for whom postmodernism what really was the vanguard of the opposing army. Uh it's one of those things that, you know, I I, I I'll admit I get a little bit impatient with people who assume that it's always been two thousand fourteen and we always knew that it was never going to be any danger. That's just not how history works. Now, I would say that you know there are very good Christian appropriations of the Enlightenment. I'd say that there are very good Christian appropriations of Charles Darwin. I'd say that there are also very good Christian appropriations of postmodernism. You should seek them out. Uh, You should see what you can learn from them. Uh, You should also understand that they might not have been possible in 1971 the way that they are in 2014 so show a little mercy folks that's my last word last word that we have time for today Uh, i want to thank michael farmer and danny anderson for joining me on this uh very very rapid trip through the postmodern uh michael i believe you've got the helm next week what are we talking about
0: i believe danny has the helm next week
1: like i was saying
0: danny i think you've got the
1: helm next week so what are we talking about
2: i'm still in the bows of the ship trying to figure that out
1: that'll be a surprise <laughs> all right, all right snowpocalypse uh, yeah <laughs> snowpocalypse indeed. well, in the meantime, listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for downloading and thank you for telling your friends about us. If you want to tell some more friends about us, you can leave us a rating on iTunes. You can leave us a review there. You can go to our Facebook page and talk to us there. You can email at the Christian Humanist at gmail. Dot com. You can also uh, find us on the web at christianhumanist.org. That's also the home of Christian Humanist Profiles and the Christian Christian Feminist Podcast. All of those shows will have their show notes posted there at christianhumanist.org. Until the next time when we find out what we are doing, uh, this is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Danny Anderson and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger
3: up, honey, you can. there is something